Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms, and more specifically, book one of the five books of Psalms. It's right in the middle of your Bible. If you're not used to using a Bible, just open right in the middle. You'll probably find Psalms, and then you want to look for the 11th chapter or the 11th Psalm that we will be focusing our attention as we continue to work through the Songs of Our Savior, a teaching series from the book of Psalms, more specifically book one. I think it'll be really evident as we read this psalm how relevant and helpful the language and the poetry is to help you in your faith in God. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want to hope and pray that this message will help you understand more who God is and why you should put your trust in him. The majority of you, though, as I already am aware, are believers in God in general, but more specifically in the God that has become incarnate and become among us, the Lord Jesus Christ. His name is Jesus. He is our King. And one of the characteristics of our current culture, which makes our psalm so relevant, could be described as chaotic. Have you ever noticed how chaotic the current cultural moral discourse is and has become. Why is this? Well, two reasons to think through. First, our society has lost any agreement on many of the basic assumptions about the world and how to put the world in order and collectively aim ourselves as human human society to a certain goal. That would be one reason why you could call the current cultural climate chaotic. Another reason would be that people who are presently in power are leading our society to overthrow specific foundational beliefs, values, and behaviors from our foundation. Things from the past or traditions from other cultures around the world are now being seen as unhelpful or oppressive. Intellectuals and institutions, like universities, for example, used to be places to preserve culture, to institutionalize beliefs and values and behaviors. But now it is these intellectuals, not universally, but largely, who are devoting themselves to subvert and destabilize and destroy traditions and foundations of at least the American culture. This is so radical and disruptive that one philosopher named Philip Reif says that what is happening today does not even deserve the name of culture. He says culture is, after all, given for established traditions established institutions, patterns of behavior that help pass on from generation to generation a norm. But what is happening today is that cultural elites, people in power, are attempting to abolish that passing down of both history and tradition. So in Philip Reef's words, we do not live in a culture, we live in an anti-culture. The destructive attitude towards previous generations is everywhere. So, Reef says, anti-cultures exist when a society is focusing on tearing down 
any sacred order from the past. Want an illustration? How many times have you seen some monument, some statue, whether this was a good idea or not, that has been taken down and said, we need to erase this and cancel it forever? This is what Philip Reef means by anti-culture and by the elite of society that want to undo basic norms, values, beliefs, behaviors. So then the question that is asked in our psalm, what should we do? What can we do? What can and should you do when the foundations of your society, the basic order of moral norms, are being chaotically thrown into confusion? Or to put it very just simply and popularly, what can and should we do when the foundations of our world are falling out from underneath of us? That, I believe, is one of the main points of Psalm 11, as David himself is going through some similar kind of crisis. And that's what is addressed, as you'll see more explicitly, in verse 3. Let's read the psalm together, and let's consider what we should, what we can do as believers. Psalm 11, to the choir master of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eye see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous. But his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word, it stands forever, which is really one of the big ideas of this text, isn't it? Big idea on your handout that I think is printed as you were walking in. There are reasons to confidently trust in God even when the bottom falls out. Even when the foundation is destroyed, there is reasons to take refuge in God, to put your hope and your trust in God. And what we want to do is consider those reasons in today's message. But let's first just look at this psalm, and as you see at least again on the handout or just in your Bibles, you'll notice that this psalm is comprised, I think, of two simple halves. Half number one is verses one to three, Confidence in God is being questioned. You'll see very clearly in verse 1, in the Lord I take refuge, but then there's a series of oppositional phrases and content that's questioning why David would put his confidence in God, which climactically ends in verse 3. Well, if all the foundations of the kingdom and the temple and life are destroyed, well then, what hope is there? It's despair. 
That's section one. Confidence in God is being questioned. Section two. Confidence in God is being confirmed. Notice how this psalm is very prayerless. It's not so much a prayer as much as a declaration of what God is like, who he is, where he is, what he's like. And so from verses 4 to 7, you just see the Lord, the Lord, the Lord repeatedly. So what we want to do is just take each of these halves. Let's meditate on them. Let's apply them. Let's think through how they might help us. If we're currently living in a time, maybe in your personal life, maybe as the broader society, I mean, shoot, the last year, 2020, has that not been a foundation-disrupting, chaotic sort of event in all of our lives that still has present continuing consequences? So as I said, I hope that the language, the context of Psalm 11 will just be evidently relevant to you. And let's dive into those first three verses to just make sure we're all following and tracking with the inspired word of God. As I mentioned, verse 1 begins with, in the Lord I take refuge. Refuge is a word for protection, to find covering or shelter. Think of hiding underneath of a shelter in a massive storm, or as the psalm says in verse 6, raining coals down on the wicked, fire and sulfur and scorching wind. Or even as you see in verse 2, the wicked bending their bow, fitting their arrow on the string. There is opposition, there is threats, there is danger in the world, whether from God or from enemies. And the psalmist begins, more than likely a psalm of David means David wrote it. So let's just assume that for the sake of argument, David says, in the Lord I take shelter. I am confidently stating that there are reasons for me to put my hope in God. The Lord, that's his personal name. I am Pastor Phil, who's preaching to you right now. Pastor would be a title. That's the word God or Elohim in the Hebrew. But then there's Phil, that's my personal name. And when we're hanging out, some of you might say, well, Nice to meet you, pastor, but then as we get to know each other, I'll say, just call me Phil, you know? That means that we're close and we're personal. God reveals himself not just as God, his title, creator of the universe, but Yahweh, my personal name. I am who I am. That's what his name means. It means he just is. He existed and he always was and he always will be from beginning to the end. That's cool. The aseity of God is that fancy theological word for meaning that God just is and he needs nothing. He does not depend on anyone. He doesn't need us to worship him, but he deserves it because he is worthy of praise. And that God is the one to whom David says, that personal God, not just God generally, but Yahweh. I take refuge in the King of Kings, the creator God. But this is being questioned. Do you see that in verse 1 and following? He is saying, how is it that I'm getting tempted by these outside voices? Who these voices are is really hard to know, especially depending on what they're saying. But how can you, and this is you plural, so for the sake of just simplicity, I think that the southern accent, not just the accent, but dialect is helpful here. How can y'all say to my soul, you plural, 
So there's a company of people. They could be believers in Israel, in the people of God, or they could be outsiders. Either way, we have a voice coming in that's questioning whether or not it's worth putting your hope in God. How can you all say to me in my, my soul, in the very inner being of my existence, I'm hearing these voices and they're penetrating my heart, and these voices are saying, flee, fly away, I think would be a very accurate translation, especially in light of the word bird. Now, the bird word is actually at the very end of the sentence, and so let me just read it as like woodenly as possible from Hebrew to English. Fly away to y'all's mountain. Again, y'all. Fly away to y'all's mountain, little birdie. That would be a very wooden translation, and it's been kind of smoothed out here in ESV. But here's what I think the essence of what's being said. Obviously, according to verse 2, you all see in verse 2, For behold, the wicked bend the bow, they fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. There are those that are coming after the people of God. There are aggressive forces after the kingdom of David. David then is seeing that the foundations of his kingdom are being destroyed. And he is then being challenged by either voices outside or inside of his camp. You should run. Fly away to their mountain. Run like a little birdie. I think that's the essence of what's being said. There's opposition. And what could you do when opposition comes? Nationally or personally? Well, there's the two F words. Fight. You can fight. I'm going to stay and I'm going to fight. Or flight. See, that's what's being encouraged here to David. Run! Fly away! And Here's the specific thing I think we should see. To y'all's mountain. Plural. In other words, David is living right now on a mountain. That's important context. If you're new to the Bible, David, the guy that's writing this, is the king of Israel in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is on a mountain. So fleeing away from his mountain would be leaving the temple, leaving the palace, and running to some other mountain. To some other god, perhaps? To some other idol, because so many of the prevalent thoughts of the day was that if you want to go worship, you'd climb up a mountain and you'd meet God on a high place. I think one of the things we want to see here is, how can you say to my soul to leave my God? To abandon my faith in Yahweh? Just because there's a little trouble around the corner, just because there's opposition, and he's metaphorically talking, maybe even literally, that there's an army of soldiers and they've got their bow and it's on its string and it's aiming right for David. I think the phrase in the dark means that they're hiding in secret and there's plans and schemes and he's being warned, you should just run, David. And so that's why question three says, If your foundations are destroyed and the temple gets turned over and your kingdom is no more, then what's the point if your God doesn't protect you from these enemies? The confidence that David has in taking refuge in God is being questioned. 
Is that pretty clear to you all? Like, am I making this up or are you reading the same Bible I'm reading? Yeah, that seems to be what's going on in Psalm 11. Verses 1 through 3, David says, In the Lord I take refuge, but I hear these voices. So before we move on to reasons why you should trust in God like David, I want to just ask, who are you listening to? Who are the voices either in the church, outside of the church, in your home, on the television screen? I don't know what it might be, but my guess is that you have voices. People who are encouraging you to either fight or flight instead of faith, trust, persevering obedience. How many of you are in a marriage that you can hear this voice that says, just run. It's not worth it. It's never going to change. How many of you have been looking around at the state of Illinois and been like, I don't see anything good happening here. Let's just move. Let's flee. Let's run for the hills. I mean, there's a thousand ways you could think about the voices, and then there's a thousand ways that that may or may not be an appropriate thing for you to do. Friends, I just want to ask you, is your decision for whatever you're being tempted to do, ultimately, like our psalm says, not just to move from one state to another. Friends, you're allowed to move from Illinois, okay? But not in order to pursue another God. Not because it's a flea from the Lord. To another mountain altogether, to another temple, to another place where God would be worshiping. If I could be more precise, how often do we see in many churches some conflict come up in a church and then somebody think, well, I don't want to deal with that. I'll just go somewhere else. And then there's no sense of pursuing obedience to the Lord Jesus to reconcile, to work it out by faith, to talk to the elders of the church and get involved so that there can be peace and harmony. No, I'll just run. That kind of running is, I think, what David's being tempted to do. Just run from the obedience of staying and holding your ground like you know you should. Do you all see the complexity here that applying this principle could look very different for each of us in a thousand different ways? We need the church and the community of faith to talk through, should I stay? Should I go? I don't know if you've had your head in the sand, but this week there's been some crazy things going on in Afghanistan, and one of my good friends does some pastoral work in the Middle East, and he has friends who are pastors in Afghanistan. I don't know if you knew that, but I wanted to let you know there are Christians right now in Afghanistan, and as you might guess, they're asking the question, should we stay or should we go? And he said the number one prayer request when talking and, and interacting with some of these pastors and their families is, do we just stay for the sake of the gospel and even if we die, we die? Or do we run? In the book of Acts, you will find both options as being valid options by the Holy Spirit leading and guiding people out of persecution and holding them fast to stay in the middle of it. As a very simple application, I would encourage all of you, 
When you hear the news in Afghanistan, which I suspect will continue to be heard all week long, pray for your brothers and sisters who are being persecuted and have taken the stand to say, I believe I should stay, even if it means my life will be taken from me. So we should pray that for them, and we should pray that for ourselves. But at the end of the day, we should pray and be confident in God, because as we see in our psalm, confidence in God is confirmed even when there are questions about the very foundations of life being destroyed. Do you see that in the second half of our psalm, verses 4 to 7? As I mentioned, notice, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. The second half of this psalm tells us that you should take refuge in the Lord and be confident in him even when the foundations are being destroyed and even when there's accusations and questions of his goodness because of where he is, because of what he is doing, and because of what he is like. I think those three questions helped me just get my hands around these last few verses. Because of where he is. Do you notice that in verse 4? Where is the Lord when everything around you is chaos? You ever ask that question? God, where are you? Answer, Psalm 11, verse 4. The Lord is in his palace, holy temple. The reason it uses that word holy in front of it is because this word that was chosen is not just the broader temple building, but rather the place that the high priest goes in the inner sanctuary of the holy of holies, meaning the hot spot of God's presence on earth. Translation, did you guys track with that? Where is the Lord? He's here on the earth. But they've got their bow coming and they're ready to attack and they're going to destroy the foundations of the world and the kingdom and the temple. And David declares, the Lord is here. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to any other mountain. Because the Lord is right here on the earth. The Lord is in his holy temple. And then, paralleled with that, the Lord's throne is in heaven. And I love this because of the contrast between he's here, right now, involved, intimately connected to the matters on this earth, personally present, intimate with humanity, but also infinitely far above all thrones, rulers, and kingdoms on this earth. Do you believe that God is both personally intimate and superior, infinitely beyond and above all? Because both of those things held together, that's a foundation that can never be shaken. 
That will hold your ballast in your boat of the seas of this crazy, chaotic storm that we're living in. God is here, and he's there all at the same time. Hallelujah. Amen. The Lord is in his holy temple because he is also the one who is on his throne in heaven. And from that vantage point, not only can he get really close to you and know the very intimate details of all of your life, but he can look far above and beyond and see the world in a way you and I could never see it. His eyes see. And in case you were questioning his goodness and his ability to care, the psalmist says his eyelids. Let that cause you to to ponder. Eyes, that makes sense. But his eyelids, what do his eyelids do? How do his eyelids help us understand his gaze at us? The best explanation I read this week was that his eyes see, and then because it's poetry, we're trying to further meditate, and it's as if he's trying to be described as a human that squints his eyes to say, I'm going to look very carefully and make sure I don't miss a thing. His eyes see, and his eyelids test humans, the children of humans. The Lord, in fact, tests the righteous, and then this is, I think, an unhelpful translation. I think it's not a but, it's an and. The Lord tests the righteous and his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. His eyes see everything of all humans and his eyes will even squint to make sure he doesn't miss anything. Again, it's a poetic description of God's concern over every little detail that happens on this earth from his vantage point in heaven. He's looking down and he is testing both the righteous and the wicked. Now, I've already shown you a few instances where Hebrew parallelism is happening, right? In his holy temple on the earth, but in his throne in heaven, parallel. Notice the parallel here. The Lord tests the righteous, and his soul hates the wicked. I was stunned by this. That doesn't seem like an intuitive parallel. Testing versus hating. Typically, let's take the second one, hating. The opposite of hating, to contrast it, would be loving. So you'd expect it to read, the Lord loves the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. Think about that today. Why? Why use the word test? Perhaps it's to communicate God's tests are loving. That the opposite of his hatred is not indifference, looking the other way, but rather examining and testing and making sure not one hair falls off of your head except for his sovereign reign and rule to allow it. And so if you are in the Lord, as David is, you notice, in the Lord I take refuge. If you are in the refuge and the protection of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Christians would say today or as Old Testament Jews would say in their day, if they're in Yahweh's protection, then he will test them. And so the psalmist can confidently say, even when things are crazy, I know that God is working out various tests 
And that it's not like I then find this shelter as somehow immune to anything wrong or bad in the world. And so that's why we hear things like the book of James says. Don't consider it some sort of strange thing that you're getting tested by trials. Instead, consider it pure joy that you're going to be growing in your faith through these trials because God does what? He loves. So what was my three questions? Where is he? In the heavens, but intimately on the earth. What is he doing? He's seeing and observing and examining and testing and caring about every single one of us, whether you are righteous or you are wicked. And what is he like? For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. You can have confidence when the world is chaotic and the moral foundations are being disrupted and destroyed because the God who reigns and rules is the one who is righteous. He does what is right. That's what righteous means. Not like some sort of smug attitude of like, yeah, I'm so righteous. It's he does what is right in all circumstances. In every situation, God does the right thing, including what verse 6 says. Right here is the only instance we have a, a bit of a prayer from David, and he says, Oh God, if you would just let raining coals come down on the wicked and fire and sulfur and a scorching wind, may the portion of their cup be judgment. And it's, it's a clear reference, if you know your Bibles fairly well, where have you heard of fire and sulfur coming down and bringing judgment on wicked people. It's from the book of Genesis. In Sodom and Gomorrah, read chapters 17, 18, and 19 in Genesis later today, and you'll get the context of David's reference here to a previous act of judgment. It's one of the like key moments in the Bible that shows God will punish the wicked, which is really hard for us sometimes to then swallow. Because when we look at ourselves in the mirror, we sometimes say, well, I'm not always that righteous. The Lord loves the righteous deeds, but he he hates those that love to do violence. Sometimes some of us would probably very specifically say, I know in my life I have loved to do violence. I have loved to hurt people. I, I had pleasure in seeing somebody's downfall. Now, maybe some of you are like, well, I'm not that bad. But this is true of our world. It's true of humanity more broadly. And again, this psalm is is broad in some ways, but it's specific in others, and I think it needs to land in your life and heart in a very specific way. Do you know if the Lord loves you? Are you confident that he will reveal his face to you Or will your portion be the cup of his wrath and judgment? I can think of no more important question than for you to get that figured out. And the answer that we have in this text is the answer that we have in the whole Bible. You can have confidence in the Lord even when chaos is all around because of who he is, where he is, and what he's like. 
That's what our psalm said. Hopefully you've been following along. You're like, I agree. That's what the psalm says. You can have confidence in God, not because, well, you're such a good person. Did you notice that wasn't necessarily in our psalm? The confidence was because of the goodness and righteousness of God. He's really good, but what if I'm not so good? What if on my best day, it's still falling short of the glory of God? Will my cup be the cup of God's wrath? Maybe. But you can have hope today and confidence that God is so good that where he is, is here intimately. The whole story of the Bible is telling us that God wants to be near us and with us, and he demonstrates that most clearly, not by a temple building behind a curtain in the Holy of Holies, but he demonstrates that when the temple became a human, when God became a person. When God sent forth his son, Jesus, into the world in order to be near us. Where is God? Well, look at Jesus. God walked on the earth. Where is God? God went to the very mountain that David is in, and it was chaotic. The foundations of the faith, of the Jewish religion, of the people that were in charge, the Roman government— What's the point? Just give up, Jesus. No, he stayed steadfast. He did not fight with the sword, and he did not run to the other mountains. He stayed on Mount Zion until they put him to death. Because the intimate God became so intimate with judgment and pain and suffering that he wanted to put it to end forever by absorbing the wrath of God, drinking down the cup of judgment on himself. This is how close and near God is to us, and this is how righteous and good and trustworthy our God is. That in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can know where he is, we can know what he's doing, we can know what he's like. And he died on the cross, was buried in the ground, was raised again from the dead, and now we know where's God? God is on his throne in the heavens, and he sends forth his spirit into our hearts so that you can have the most intimate personal connection with God that could ever be imagined. You can have him right here, that the temple becomes us and you. Where's God? Well, to take refuge in him is to take him in right here in your heart. Where's God? He's on his throne and the Lord Jesus Christ, he cares about every sin that's ever been committed and he did something about it by dying on the cross because he's a righteous God. He does not look sin to the other way. Sweep it under the rug. He looked very carefully and he said, I would like to do something about that and the raining coals of the wicked, and the fire, and the sulfur, and the foundations that shook, literally shook, when Jesus died on the cross, and he took the cup of God's wrath, and he absorbed the wrath that God has for humans on the human Jesus Christ. That's what he's like. You want to know what the God of the Bible is like? Then get to know Jesus. Understand where he is, and where he can be accessed, that he's available, that he's on the throne, that he's a victor, that he is the ruler. 
understand that what he has done and what he is doing is interceding on our behalf because he loves righteousness and he loves it when you would turn and put your faith and trust in him. So you have reasons, lots of them, both from Psalm 11 and the broader story of the Bible to put your confidence in God, in Jesus Christ. His kingdom cannot be shaken because Jesus Christ shook the world when he died on the cross and opened the tombs of the dead to show the new life that he is bringing forth in his new kingdom. Do you understand that Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone and the foundation of the world, he was destroyed so that when you look around at the chaos in this world, you can say, I have a kingdom that will never end and it is not here on this earth. My citizenship is in heaven, and that down payment is received by the gift of the Spirit and the life of the church. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that today you will remember that you will see his face. Do you see the way our psalm ends? For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall see his face you can be confident that you will see his face as a face that's filled with love and smiling welcome because you have found your refuge in the cross of Christ, in the hope of the gospel. If you're here today and you're not a Christian and you're not knowingly, consciously putting your hope in Jesus, then I have nothing else to offer you. And I would warn you that all those other mountains that we would be tempted to flee to to find hope and refuge, I am very confident that they will not deliver what you're hoping they would. So I plead and urge you to consider Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for Jesus Christ, that he is the ultimate revealer of where you are, who you are, what you're like, what you're doing. And we're thankful yet again that today we can be confident in your goodness. So we want to pray for all those who are listening to your word and considering the, the point of Psalm 11. We want to pray that wherever they find themselves, they would want to put their trust in you. They would want to stay the course and persevere as a believer, and not abandon the faith, not run off to another mountain, not deconstruct their Christianity because of some abuse that has happened in their church or their family from a Christian leader. Oh God, would you be merciful and help those who are hurting and in need of strengthening their confidence in your righteousness. May today we celebrate and know that you are good and that you are worthy of having our whole lives be centered around Jesus Christ and the sure foundation of his gospel message. So we want to pray for Embassy Church as a new season of COVID this or that starts coming our way and foundations of our world seem to continue to rumble Oh God, may we be unified as a body of believers because of the gospel. Help us to remember our citizenship in heaven and therefore faithfully and perseveringly live out our lives 
here on this earth now. Oh God, we need you, and we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.